This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey gang, Red Hills Rancher here with your weekly episode of Ranching Reboot. Today is episode number 38, and CK and I couldn't be more grateful for all your support over the past nine months. Before we jump into today's conversation, there's a few things I need to tell you. Our very own CK has joined on Twitter, so go give her a follow, ck.ranchingreboot. You can also follow me at Red Hills Rancher. Come check out our Facebook group, Ranching Reboot Paddock. We're doing some pretty cool polls right now. Come vote for your favorite episode. Today on the show, we are talking about one of the great food deserts, not just of Kansas, but most of the country. Now, a good deal of what we talk about today ties back to episode 34 with Liz Haney and Russell Hedrick. Now, one last thing before I want to introduce today's guest. I need all of my loyal listeners to share their favorite episode with somebody whose life you think it might change. Today's guest is a very savvy lady that I'm glad to count among my friends. She tells a captivating, mind-blowing tale that should be staring us all in the face. Please welcome the brilliant and beautiful Jessica Nad for a mind-blowing chat about Regeneration 2.0. So Jess, Jess Nad, welcome to the show. How are you today? <laughs> Brian, it is a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Well, it's great for you to be here. Uh, you know, I've, I've known you for quite a few years. Uh, CK, you guys met, right? No, we just met. We just became pals. So when I was living in Manhattan, she invited me over for dinner and uh, met her and her husband and um, they met my husband and it was actually really nice to meet someone while I was in Manhattan who understood region ag. Not many yeah, people. Yeah, it was. <laughs> kind of a shortage of those minds up there, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So it was really nice. It was awesome, you know, because my, uh, like you guys, you know, your spouses are involved with certain aspects of agriculture. It is so cool when you get another couple. And I think we talked really late into the night. It was so much fun um, just to kind of have these conversations that aren't, you know, normal in a social setting. So it was really fantastic. Well, you know, it's kind of funny. People talk about, you're talking about like normal conversation in the social settings and like that's the only conversations I want to have are, you know, cows and grass oh, and, and soil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I feel the same way. Uh, Brian, do you remember how we met? Oh, I, I really don't. <laughs> so I'm pulling a fast one on you. Um, this is how I remember getting introduced to you and your operation and your family. It was when I was living just a little bit north of you, right outside the Red Hills in Pratt County, Kansas, and we had this seven-acre homestead that we were working on, and I had posted a picture of our back pasture that had been severely overgrazed by donkeys, and I was asking about the removal of yucca and cactus, 
And oh my gosh, between you and your dad, there was this huge tree line of cedars. And that was my first introduction of like getting the cedars off of the grazing lands, the dangers of having these cedars. Um, and it wasn't long after that, we had the big, the big fire that swept through your place down there. I, right. I, I don't specifically remember that, but it sounds exactly like something I would do. Look at a picture somebody posted and completely ignore the question that they asked and tell them to get rid of their cedar trees. I had no idea. I, and you were exactly right, you know, and then and then the aftermath of the fires, that's when we realized we needed to look at our property a little bit more holistically and like, how can we make sure that we're setting ourselves up to, to be protected from from this fire season? Well, you're doing a good job of, of setting yourself up to tell your story. <laughs> because back then that was uh if it was before the fire that would have been like in the 2014 2015 time frame and uh you know like 6 years ago we didn't even have a term to we didn't even have the term regenerative agriculture mm -hmm. so i guess walk us through you know the last 6 7 years in the life of of the nad family and where were you guys at and what were you doing back there, you know, when you were posting those pictures, wanting to know what to do about your yucca and how did you get to where you're at now? Oh Lord, that's going to be a conversation. No, this is really, we've great. got all morning. That, <laughs> so context is totally key. And I think that, um, you know, it's really important to, to talk about how each one of us comes to the story a little bit differently and I think that by telling our stories, we have the ability to have compassion for meeting folks where they're at in their journey of soil health. And it's taken me 10 years to really think about and talk about this, this, you know, what we're calling like this soil health journey. And you're exactly right. We had no idea when we started this, that it was going to be regenerative, that we would create careers and movements and all sorts of stuff out of it. So to get to the beginning, um, I, I had the fortunate experience to fall in love with an agronomist and living in Kansas. I mean, yeah, of course you're exposed to agriculture, but didn't grow up in a farming family per se. So a lot of new things uh, were coming my way when I married an agronomist. And I think as a naturally curious person, the first question was, I couldn't figure out why he wasn't home for dinner each night, you know, in the summertime. Like, I, I was like, what, you know, what is it that you do? I can't figure this out. Like, you just can't leave and come home for dinner. And so um, after a while, he, you know, he said, hop in the truck, let's go. So I hopped in the truck and checked fields for a day, Al almost died, didn't actually die like I thought I might die. Um, but it was a completely wild experience of looking at the crops and trying to determine what was going on with the crops, checking for more moisture, pests, weeds, you know, all the above. It was just such a fascinating new world to me that um, I just, I, I, I needed to learn more. So from there, um, started the family, had a bunch of kids and knew that I was gonna, gonna stay home with my kiddos. And at that time we had this desire to become homesteaders, like based off of our experience with agronomy. Um, my husband's also a master gardener. Um, you know, I grew up in a family where we kept huge gardens. We really fed ourselves. And that was actually because money was tight in the summer. 
I didn't know that until, you know, I grew up older, but, um, but yeah, that was one reason why my parents had a big focus on backyard gardening is because it really provided for the family, um, in the lean months of the summer. And, um, yeah, so I had this desire to grow my own food. That's really where it started was I'm going to grow my own food. And then that led me into this rabbit hole of learning about local food and learning about local food in Kansas in particular. And I was shocked. So we're not doing great producing our own food in Kansas. Oh, no, we're doing, uh, we're doing terrible. (laughs) (laughs) So CK, we got to talk about that. Yeah. it, it, it truly is. And in 2014, there's a fantastic report put out by the Kansas Rural Center called Feeding Kansas. And they identified that the entire state of Kansas, of the acres that can be farmed, you know, of, of all of the, you know, square miles in Kansas, 90% of that is for agricultural use. Um, but Kansans, 95% of what's on our plate does not get grown here in Kansas. And, you know, I used to kind of sprinkle these statistics out over the years. And then I would talk about economic development if we all ate local food and I had statistics and I had, you know, I could talk about if everybody spent $5 a week, we could generate $750 billion of new economic revenue for the state of Kansas, yada, 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 you know, it kind of fell on dead ears, but guess what? COVID hit, right? So then all of these things that I was talking about, about food insecurity, about how breaks in the supply chain. Suddenly they're front page hunger. news. Absolutely. It was front page news. And, you know, Jessica Nab wasn't as, well, I'm still kind of nutty and crazy, but like people were like, Hey, what was that that we were talking about? You know, that actually happened. Didn't it? I mean, in Manhattan, my kids school lunch program lost its food provider. So there was a week where the school didn't know how they were going to feed the kiddos. So yeah, I mean, that was kind of a little rabbit hole there, but it was really this desire to feed my kids, to feed my husband. Um, When you live out in a part of southeastern, south, or excuse me, south central Kansas, there's not restaurants for lunch. You know, there's gas stations. So I knew I needed to feed my husband really well, send him coolers of food, and I wanted to source that as locally as possible. Um, And I, I also had the fortunate experience to meet Kurt and Andy Dale down in protection because we were looking for meat products grown in a particular way. And I was an uneducated consumer. I didn't know what I was looking for. Right. So I saw this posting that Kurt and Andy Dale had about their pastured meats. So we did what we do. We hop in the truck and we go look at it. That's what we do in Kansas. You know, you got some time off. Let's let's hop in the truck and go drive around. Um, so we drove down there. We we actually ran into Kurt and Andy. They pulled us into their living room. And you realize this, we, we just like cold called, showed up on these people's farm, right? And uh, Kurt handed us a book about Joel Salatin, about becoming a lunatic. And in the back of my mind, I was like, I think I might be a little nutty. And, and then I meet these people who think differently and act differently and are trying to do something differently. And I, it, that just creates a bond with people. So Kurt and Andy Dale were, they were our gateway drug into soil health and, and learning about growing food and producing food. The Dales are, the Dales are some of my favorite people. They're only about uh, 35, 40 miles down the road. We get a lot of our meat from the Dales. They're just oh, so do we. absolutely so wonderful do we. people. You guys still get a you're well, you're we there do. in Manhattan. You you get uh you get Dale Family Farms all uh-huh. the way up there? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So they deliver, they were on their delivery route. And then I've gotten a number of my family members on the delivery route. Uh, my parents, and, and this is what, you know, I'm kind of bouncing around, but talking about in the beginning, I was an uneducated consumer and it took me a number of years to convince my parents um, to seek out and spend a little bit more of their food budget on better quality meat, you know, just the health benefits um, and, and talking about when this whole idea of voting with your dollars is pretty obscure. I think still for for consumers, um, but so my parents were doing really good buying the meat, but then we had to start talking about what happens when you go out to a restaurant, you know, what are you supporting when you do that? So yeah, because of all this education and 10 years of, of having them as influences, I, I hope that we've been able to bring more consumers into the fold about thinking about their food. And, and that was key for my husband and I, we understood really before we got into the soil health agricultural part that food was our medicine. And that I can determine the way that I think and act and look based on what I put inside my body. So that was that was actually kind of the core for, for Mama Bear when I started thinking about health. It was through the lens of my kiddos, feeding my husband, making sure that he could, um, you know, run our business that we ran down there in Pratt County. So from there, we started putting in large gardens, um, market gardens. We really just kind of became obsessed with seeing what we could grow. I was doing it all on a budget. So that led me to heirloom seeds and seeds that would, you know, crops that would come back year after year. And then I realized I needed to rotate my crops year after year. So I would watch these little tomatoes and peppers and, um, you know, uh, squash and zucchini come up that were heirloom. And I would, I would have to watch them and then I transplant them to another area. And so it became our own backyard experimentation center of figuring out how we were going to grow food. And at first we did it, we did it chemical free, but we were very heavy tillage in our garden. And we realized it took, I'll tell you what, getting the keys to that tiller, that backyard tiller was, was a a pretty big deal because my husband loved to till up the garden each year. It was a thing, you know, the smell of it, the texture getting out there. It's a reset though, because we just moved here in, in Idaho too. And we had a bunch of just like really ugly weed infested, like side pasture And it is nice to just kind of have a reset, right? But my brain is like, like yours too, is I know I shouldn't be doing this. (laughs) It's addicting. But what we did is, so we purchased, much to my own chagrin, we purchased a former donkey ranch and we had, and it was overgrazed. It was not managed properly, but we had all of this manure so we yeah. did that. We did that first year reset where we we scooped up the manure, we piled it, we rotate it. We were like taking temperature checks with the, right. with the intent of like building compost out of it. Um, and then year after year, as we tilled, we we started to really suffer from compaction. Yeah. And when I started to realize that the key to growing food was soil health, I had a very good friend of mine come out. And she tried to dig in my garden bed. And she's like, girlfriend, I don't know why you're talking about soil health. You have compacted soil. She's like, look at this. I can't even push my shovel, you know, my spade in your ground. What so, was what was causing that <laughs> compaction layer? I think it was uh, repeated tillage passes 
up where we were working on. I don't, uh, we also weren't focusing on keeping our soil covered. So we would plant our, our, so we were planting a garden with a conventional cropping system in mind. Yeah. And so we would have these perfect rows and yeah. we would mound them up. There would be nothing growing. We would hoe the rows. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I started introducing my husband to some more of these chaos methods, it was way out of his comfort zone. I, I one time had to replant a row of onions because it wasn't like these perfect 90 degree rows. If you know my right, husband, right. like yeah. that's him. I'm, I'm more like all over the place and I like to be sporadic, but, um, but that's what it was from. And then a, uh, infestation of squash bugs is what made us rethink our entire system of farming in our backyard. I, so, I'm fighting squash bugs right now in, yeah. in my garden. So what the, what did you do to get rid of your squash so, bugs? The, the first year, one thing that I think observation is key and, and, you know, having an agronomist master gardener husband. Now you have to remember his master gardener training was not through the lens of soil health. Right. So he had to like, he had to take these frameworks of his knowledge and then continue to plug it into a soil health framework. But what I'll tell you is that it's, it can be done. It absolutely can be yeah. done. So the first year we had all of the squash in one particular area. And it was just a whole squash patch with all sorts of different types. Um, what we ended up doing is actually taking that plot of land out of production for two or three years. I mean, that was that was how we stopped it. But in subsequent years, we would, we would uh, rotate the planting of our squash throughout the entire garden space. So we wouldn't concentrate the squash bugs in any one particular area. And the best thing that we did to manage squash bugs was to let them devour an entire plant. Um, So if there was one that they were eating on and maybe there was a healthy one next to it, maybe we would sacrifice that healthy one and create this barrier so that it hadn't, the squash bugs had enough um, food to eat and then they didn't continue to travel. So um, we also had a very, very um, strict, no chemical usage in the garden because my husband was an agronomist and because of his exposure day in and day out of walking fields, um, we felt it really, really important to not use any chemistry in the backyard. That's not to say I didn't do a pre-emerge on the front of my yard twice in 10 years. So full disclosure, (laughs) but in the back where the kiddo, you know, the barefoot kiddos and picking berries off the vine and picking tomatoes and popping them in your mouth, we had to have a zero chemical policy. Something I'd like to explore a little bit more is, you know, with your husband being you know, more or less conventionally trained in agronomy and doing that as a day job, like, is it difficult to reconcile for him to reconcile those two parts of his life of, you know, having having the soil health regenerative garden at home, but still having to go out every day and walk tillage fields that are being sprayed? Oh my gosh, that's the core. That's the core of everything, Brian. That's you're exactly right. And um, you know, that's a little bit apart. That's a part of his story, but just to unwind it a little bit. The first things first, it's hard to listen to your wife. Your untrained wife, you know, somebody that has no yes. experience, that's not running a business. And so, as I started learning about some of this, um, the way that 
I was sharing information as I would write these emails on a topic and I would send them to him. Um, so as he was discovering in his backyard and then, you know, thinking about his, his business and the conventional cropping systems that he was working in, he was kind of slowly absorbing information. Um, but I would say that that was very difficult for both of us in particular when we started to understand the, the chemical load that farmers and ranchers carry in their bodies, when we started to understand this through the lens of human health, it became even harder. So we had, you know, he wouldn't wear his shoes inside. We'd keep the boots would stay outside. You know, the clothing would get separated in different laundry baskets. If I had the ability to have a second set of washer and dryer, and I know some people do have a second set of washer and dryers out, out in a shop or a shed where the clothes go so that you're not doing, um, you know, so that you're not exposing, you're not inadvertently bringing home something that could be harmful to the kiddos. And we did have a personal thing happen with our son with, with a type of exposure. And so that's what really fueled that. And that's what made us aware that, um, you know, we need to do something different. Can we continue to farm at a large scale profitably that is better for the environment, that can um, help reduce inputs, and that can help create a better environment for these farm kiddos and these rural kids that are, you know, rural and urban. But in particular, I'm really passionate about what I see happening in um, our neck of the woods where we used to live. If we, I mean, if we lose a rural population and our ability to produce food, I mean, there's, there's not much we have left. And absolutely. So you mentioned, you mentioned a chemical load in the body that a lot of farmers and ranchers are walking around with. And, you know, of, of course that, that includes me, but is there a way to measure or, or understand what, what chemical load we're walking around with and what that's doing to our bodies? Absolutely. And interestingly enough, it was the, you know, doctors in a rural setting that helped us understand this. And in particular, so the shortest way to answer your question is yes, there's blood work that you can do. In particular, we've used a company called Great Plains Laboratory out of Olathe, Kansas, and they have a test that can be ran, ran, I think it's called the GPL talks. And what they're looking at is they're looking at, um, certain organophosphate compounds and the test can actually help you determine what your load is inside your body. So I'm not a medical doctor and nobody should take advice from me. Uh, but I'll tell you, a hill bent mom can learn a lot of information very quickly. And, and what we learned as a nutshell is that when your body does take in this uh, chemical load, the compounds, because of how they're designed to work in the field, they um, offset your body's ability to utilize um, calcium and magnesium. So this is just an example. So your heart beats on calcium and it relaxes on magnesium. And so when you do have a chemical load in your body that might be caused by an organophosphate, the chemical load blocks your body's ability to utilize magnesium and calcium. And there, there could be a ton of other different examples to use, but that's the one that, that I understand it because what ends up happening is it looks like you're having a heart attack. 
and it feels like you're having a heart attack, but you're not having a heart attack. What you have is you have, um, you know, chronic exposure to organophosphates. So that's a yes to, you know, short answer is yes, you can do that. I think the key is finding a practitioner that can help you with this particular diagnosis or um, also with trying to remedy this as a diagnosis. Okay, that, that makes sense. I guess it even goes back to, it goes back to a lot of farmers and, you know, if you're a farmer, it sounds like I'm picking on you, sorry, but you know, a lot of conventional farmers around here, you know, up up into Pratt, you know, Southern Pratt County, which is what I see an awful lot. They don't really, I don't think anybody really thinks about, you know, those two and a half gallon jugs that they dump in that sprayer and what that chemical is and how much of it's on their body. And I would imagine that agronomists like, like your husband that go out and actually walk fields or ride fields, um, they probably carry quite a bit more of it than the farmer does. Yeah, I think it's hard to say, but based on the particular geography of, of the area you just mentioned, you know, that's that's uh, kind of some high intensive um, center pivot irrigation farming systems. And so you do, it's it's the, the crop scouting is key weekly, sometimes biweekly, having somebody out there um, is definitely key. And so one thing I think that's a misconception about this topic, and just to be clear, it took me 10 years to even talk about this. The first time I, I really spoke out about this, and I actually didn't think it'd be the topic of this podcast today, but it's kind of, I like the direction we're going, so let's keep going. Um, yeah, it took like 10 years to even have this because I'm so incredibly sensitive. I love the farming community, and I've never met a single producer that would willingly do harm. Absolutely, I've never, that's never happened. Um, but what I think is that Nature always wins. And as we try to, quote unquote, fight nature with chemistry, certain things are going to happen to where we are using more chemistry, you know, putting more out there than what we we would have to do in order to control our weeds and to control our pests. So um, Mother Nature's yeah. funny. She'll let us think we're winning that war. And then all yeah. of a sudden she'll pop up with a super weed that is resistant to everything we can throw at it. And then we'll have to come up with something better, something even more lethal that's more toxic and more persistent. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, that the, what, what we're talking about here is, is really 10 years of life experience. And so when this question of toxicity came out through the lens of, of somebody's health, um, the first set of doctors was like, well, did you stick your hand in a jug? Like, did you, did you stir it with your hand? Well, nobody does that, you know, like, well, did you drink it? No, you know, nobody's drinking it. No, uh, I just walked you... through fields that the shit is sprayed on for 10 hours exactly. a day. Or, or, or re-entry. So re-entry is key. You always, you know, you need to follow the re-entry protocols, you know, make sure you're not going back out there in the time prior to when they consider it safe. So none of that was happening. What it was is it was a chronic exposure. And the what happens is you will have an acute reaction to a chronic exposure. So that's really how we learned about it. And then finally, there was a doctor that uh, came to us and said, you know, you're having some sort of reaction. This is a reaction. And you need to find a doctor who works with toxicity 
and, you know, figure out what it is. And so that took us to Wichita, Kansas, of all places. And we can stick some links of some really fabulous medical doctors who are helping people in the ag community get rid of some of these toxins and be able to take back their their physical and, and um, you know, their health. So why isn't anybody talking about it? How come how come we're not seeing this on the news that there's a health epidemic with with pesticides and herbicides and acute toxicity or chronic toxicity problems? I've been afraid to tell the story for 10 years, guys. Fear. I think that there there is a fear of, of even like big ag, right? Um well, nobody's yeah. going to pull sponsorship from us. So, I mean, no, no, they're not. yeah. And I don't think that like those type of labels really listen to us anyways, but I, I think that also people don't want to admit that what they're doing is causing harm because mm-hmm. what would they'd have to transition, right? They'd have to, I don't know. I think it's just fear. Yes. So about eight years ago, I did start to kind of go down and I'm skipping over a lot of the stories. So in the meantime, I realized that I needed to focus on things that I could change. Ultimately, the only thing a mom or a dad can change are the four walls of your own house. Yes. Um, I expended that out to the, my backyard, back to my soil. Um, I wanted to have a market for some of the products I was producing. So we, along with some other Uh, Folks in the area, we started a farmer's market. There was a a co-op that is still in existence today. It was Azure Standard is still going on down there. I mean, we, I I really put things into actionable um, steps and, you know, I joined the health coalition. I had amazing support from the hospital. It was interesting. The hospital um, health coalitions supported local food. Like that was such a hands down. They're like, oh yeah, we need more local food. We need more local food producers. And this question of, uh, you know, conventional agriculture really is not conducive for growing, uh, for growing fruits and vegetables and specialty crops because they're too sensitive to, to dicamba drift and they're too sensitive to um, just a, a lot of different things. And so I've watched producers in that area start up businesses and then have to backtrack because um, their their crop ground of maybe five acres isn't protected from, from drift. And so um, I did speak out about eight years ago and um, was told to sit down and was, you know, my, my husband got a phone call and they said, do you know what your wife is up to? Because people don't want to, especially back then. So I did, I recoiled and I didn't say another word about it until literally like 2020. So when the pandemic came out, I feel like, I don't know. I mean, I'm not the type of person to say the gloves are off. Let's go for it. Even though I just said that out loud and it felt good. Um, But what what I want to do is, is how can we advocate? How can we not have another generation lost in these small rural towns of Kansas? How can we not watch what a lot of us have worked so hard for in agriculture? And I love farming and I love being a part of this, but I also, it hurts my heart when I see schools close or when I see grocery stores close. I mean, I I don't have all the answers. I can see it too. You know, I've, I've lived out here in rural Kansas for my whole life and I've watched the population in every town around me except Wichita just slowly slowly bleed away and 
it was it was probably in uh, in 2019 when I met Mike Calicrate, and he he said a few things, and I kind of woke up to Dollar General. It's like okay, mm-hmm. now I'm really starting to see how how businesses like Dollar General will come into a functioning rural community, and yeah, on the surface. The city planners, city administrators are like, oh, yeah, Dollar General, that's great. We'll get five more jobs. Mm-hmm. But they don't realize that it's going to cost the three jobs at the grocery store, one job at the convenience store, and maybe two or three others in town. And There's no health care, no benefits, just... It's predatory is what it is. And it's a business model that is very clearly working for them. <laughs> Well, it works for them. I mean, they, it's it's a wealth extraction. It's a wealth transfer. It's, it's you know, Dollar General to me, when I see a Dollar General pop up in a rural community of like 300 people, I look at that and go, that's the vulture showing up to mm-hmm. strip mine the last remaining wealth out of this community. So let me ask you this question. Is that commodity thinking? Are we now, you know, commoditizing i don't know if that's the right word our small towns is that not like a byproduct of the commodity markets that have dominated agriculture for the last couple decades and is the solution refocusing and re-centralizing our goods not only our food but all of our goods i mean yeah i'm not talking about 40 acres and a mule here i'm talking about like how do we think of our our small towns Uh, and protect them from the disruptions we've already seen because of COVID. I mean, I had a friend who's, who's uh, knew somebody high up at Kroger and when the pandemic hit, there was rumors. I don't know if they ended up being true that, you know, there's only three days worth of, of supply chain that could get out to some of these small towns. And what if, what if these trucking systems or what if this, uh, uh, the supply chain could only deliver to Wichita and they couldn't drive an hour out to Pratt. Like what if that happened? Those are scary. What ifs? I know. I mean, those are big, scary. What ifs? Is dollar general going to save you? (laughs) No, your garden in your backyard is going to save you. Your neighbors that are growing food are going to save you. You know, it, it, so the commoditization of, of everything, including our, like our thought processes and how we think about things I'm sure that some a lot of that has kind of crept in unconsciously. The bigger point to be made, and you're dancing around it, is it takes energy to transport food. And, you know, over the last 18 months, we've seen so many supply chain disruptions. You know, like food businesses, like restaurants, can't find help. Um, you know, the price of meat in the stores has skyrocketed, but the price of cattle and sheep and goats is and pigs is, you know, it, it's as low as ever. And fuel, the price of fuel is going up. I mean, uh, diesel fuel, I think it's on top of $4 a gallon now or pretty close. And in places like out in Colorado, it's close to five, but, you know, that mountain economics. So is, you know, every increase... In, in transportation costs just kind of compounds. Like you said earlier, we grow almost nothing here that we eat. Mm-hmm. I mean, 95 plus percent of our food in Kansas is imported. And, you know, I, we got a lot of listeners that aren't just in Kansas. I would almost say that every state, probably except California, you're importing 90 plus percent of your food. Yeah. 
I think so. And the danger of that is, you know, we've seen in the last 18 months, all these supply chains getting, getting weak and failing, uh, you know, Ford, Chevy, Dodge, Toyota, Nissan, they're all, they've all shut down production of cars because they can't get microchips. Mm-hmm. You know, long-term supply chain disruptions that we haven't even begun to see that have their roots 18 months ago. We're not done with it yet. We're not done no. seeing the supply t- chain disruptions from COVID. I think they're just getting warmed up. I agree. And I think I kind of fall into this category too. Sometimes it does feel like the problem's so big that it's like, how do you deal with all that? Like, how do you process all that? How does one individual um, make an impact? Is that even possible? And and I don't know the answer to that. And by no means am I trying to to make it sound like I think soil health or regenerative agriculture is the only solution, but that is actually where I find my hope. Um, it's not Disneyland. This isn't magic, folks. This is actually... Um, deciding that you're concerned about the way things are and that what what can you do? What can you actually do to maybe help something or change something? So um, I think that's where the work that I do in soil health and in regenerative agriculture, that's my answer to all this. So the, the whole 10-year story that I've kind of laid out, really there's so many other details, so many other factors that um, I was really encouraged by some people that I love dearly and they said, okay, Jessica, well, you, you have the ability to communicate. You're, you know, you're good at, you know, I don't know what I'm good at event planning. Maybe I have an idea. Um, so put it to work. So, so that's what I've done. I've decided to make a lot of these topics, my, my career. And that's a good segue to talk about great plains regeneration (laughs) and what, and what you're trying to do to help the situation with, with GPR. Yeah, so GPR is a nonprofit that I have the fortunate um, ability to be trusted by my colleagues to be able to run. And uh, we have a, uh, we were co-founded by farmers and ranchers and other key stakeholders that have been working in this whole regenerative ag movement for a number of years. And so as a nonprofit, our goal is really to be a liaison between large and small stakeholders, which sounds like the most generic comment you could you could basically say. But this idea of decommoditizing certain sectors of agriculture by creating new markets seems like um, something that is achievable and that we can do. And so how do we liaison some of these either large, and it's coming from all sectors. We're seeing food companies, we're seeing fashion companies, we're seeing um, you know, manufacturing companies. I'm working with a sustainable t-shirt company right now. Um, so how do we create these conversations for how goods and crops and products are produced at the agricultural level? How do we liaison them up to becoming products that consumers can, can purchase? So that's kind of the overall goal of Great Plains Regeneration and our modes of activation of doing this our farmer-led, rancher-led uh, education. We want to do that in the entire High Plains, Great Plains region. Um, and that's something that I've done for a number of years. So that was kind of low-hanging fruit. It was like, let's keep educating. I am not an agronomist, and I don't ever tell anybody how to farm. 
But what I do and what I think that is is the top of my skill set is I connect those with the information to those who need the information. Um, so GPR is not a nonprofit that's going to tell people how to farm. But what we want to do is we want to facilitate, um, you know, this transaction of knowledge. So the second way that we activate our programming is through watershed regeneration. We're working really closely with the Kansas Alliance for Wetlands and Streams. And I think that the ultimate outcome of our work is better water quality, you know, improved water infiltration, not only on the crop fields, but down into the municipal cities, you know, Oklahoma City, Kansas City, Omaha, you know, these are all things that be, you know, ask a city what their biggest line item budget is. And it's, it's making sure that the citizens have clean water. And then irony kind of hit on new market development, but um, this idea that we can produce goods locally um, or hyper regionally or in nodes of clusters of farmers that are working together. Um, we're working on an agroforestry project right now. And I made beer. So we worked with a local brewer in Northeast Kansas. We got him connected to our farmer network. He was able to source some turkey red wheat that was grown using soil health practices like no-till and cover crops and um, you know zero, zero inputs. And we made a really delicious beer. It was a one-off. It was a prototype, um, but it's it's in liquor stores and grocery stores right now if you're in Northeast Kansas. And so we're hoping to use this as a demonstration of what we can do in the future. I almost wish I drank beer so I could try right. it. <laughs> <laughs> Our oh. hope, Jess, is if we host an event, um, we can have like a regenerative beer or regenerative like bar mm -hmm. like yeah regenerative and so we've been trying to collect brands who are doing that so we, we have a whiskey uh brand that, that does stuff the soil health wine i think that's kind of it though um so now we have a beer and we can source maybe. yes well what's really great is there's a huge trend in craft beer and it's a totally new topic that i've had to dive in head first and really figure out but here's the thing it doesn't take long no. if you guys have something you know we can work on a formulation and get out there mm -hmm. and source the products um i mean i think there's great hope for producers to be able to sell directly to either malt houses or breweries um something like that i think that's something that we can add into this conversation of regenerative agriculture is is regenerating our you know beer supply chain uh, speaking of, of beer, because I did kind of, you know, even though I don't drink, I did kind of like do a little bit of research um, in, into beer making. Everything, we can grow everything you need to make beer in Kansas, even mm -hmm. hops. Correct. But one, we of the, do. but one of the things we don't have anywhere in Kansas, and I'm sure they're around, but is a, is a malting facility, someplace that will malt Correct. your grain for you. Yeah, and, and that's one thing that we are, you know, we're doing some uh, exploratory conversations about that and some feasibility studies, but that was kind of our first uh, thought process. And, you know, we talk a lot, you talk a lot about this um, on other podcasts about um, building the infrastructure. Uh, when it comes to local meat, you know, we, we, we need to have the, the, um, the packing houses and the the places, the distributors. And so I agree with what you just said, Brian. I mean, I think there's an opportunity there for, you know, this region of Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma, 
you know, can we malt here? Can we do that? We found that in particular, the winter barley is, it can be grown well in this region. And then also rye, (laughs) let's grow rye for beer. I mean, to me, that just kind of makes sense, but here's the thing. We can't do any of this unless we have markets. And I have found that farmers and ranchers are the most innovative and willing to change operations when there's a market involved. And so that's, that's really where we're at right now with this conversation is how do we ensure that this crop that we're asking producers to grow, which is probably not going to be covered under crop insurance or or other type of programs that they might be currently enrolled in. How do, you know, how do we de-risk, this situation and produce it. Well, and I think that circles back around to what we were talking about a few minutes ago about the commoditization of everything, right? Cultural systems are set up to deal with mass quantities of one or two products. You know, like a co-op doesn't want to deal with somebody growing 400 acres of barley and, you know, and 15 different crops because they don't have anywhere to store it and they don't want to try to, they don't want to try to sell it. So the co-ops, they tell Mm -hmm. everybody, you know, corn, wheat, soybeans, if you want to sell it here, because that's all we're going to buy this year. Access to markets, you know, it it's not just in the meat space. You know, it's it's definitely in the crop space and not just talking about the big commodity crops that are grown. You know, like, uh, I think it was, gosh, I think it was at Soil Health a year or two ago um, where we came out, where somebody came out and said that there were like over 4,000, like 4,300 acres of red potatoes in Kansas. And that was almost like it was like seven or ten percent of the nation's red potato output. I'm thinking four thousand acres isn't that much. No, it's like <laughs> forty five that like forty five thousand acres of red potatoes is all the red potatoes we need for the country for the year. Like that's really not that much, but it's access to market. It's access to you know a processing plant, place to store the potatoes in, in a way to market them that's mm-hmm. lacking. Yeah. Yes. Because everything is so commoditized because, oh, well, Kansas, we can grow wheat in Kansas. So everybody grows wheat in Kansas. Well, let's grow some other stuff too. You know, like barley and rye. Rye grows wild. Mm-hmm. You know, there's yeah. a lot of wheat fields where they spend <laughs> where they spend a lot of money per acre every year to keep the rye out of it. Well, and that's why she, like, anytime I brought that up to my husband, he's like, oh my God, lady, you are going to, you are going to wreck me. You're talking about, you know, yeah, let's grow some more rye here for beer, but you're exactly right. Like the, the corn that they need for bourbon guys, it's like, it's nothing, you know, let's, let, let's figure out ways to make these connections and, uh, you know, help prop people up. Uh, profitably, you need to talk to Russell Hedrick. He's got a great presentation about um, the economics of corn whiskey. You know, <laughs> we'll get you connected to him. But no, it does. It's a. Uh, these are all the things that that we're trying to work on. Um, once we launched the nonprofit, and once we started to kind of sprinkle out some of the work that we wanted to do, we're we're really getting some some great positive feedback about how a nonprofit can help in this situation and how we can liaison um, different people to be a part of the conversation to make it happen. Because what I find is apparel companies, food companies, um, all of these other different industries that are looking at the soil, they don't know how to have the conversation. Yeah, it's a, you're like the bridge. Like you're just bridging them 
those two conversations together, right? So I um, I think we talked to, like when I talk to people who are in those industries too, it's they want to have the conversation like you say. And so you just have to feed them two or three things to educate them. And then after that, it kind of, it kind of just catches with them, their curiosity where they can figure out how to keep that conversation going. And that's my great hope. And what we did with Wilcott Brewing in Holton, Kansas, uh, when we had this idea of producing this beer and the beer was actually going to be a special edition beer for our fundraiser. So we thought, okay, if we're going to be talking about solar health, regenerative agriculture, connecting consumers to farmers, we need to have an event where there's local food, local farmers, um, civic engagement, environmentalists. We had tribes, we had the Prairie Band Potawatomi, Maya tribe. Uh, we had members from the uh, uh, Winnebago in, in Nebraska. And so when we went to the brewer, we're like, hey, we should really produce this local beer and we want to use regenerative. He said, what's regenerative? And um, he actually, I, this, I've heard this before. He actually like lost sleep that night because he started researching regenerative and he was up all night and he called me the next morning and he's like, I want my whole operation to be regenerative. Uh, so let me. Moment. Oh, he, he totally did. Moment. I was like, that was the Kool-Aid, man. You just, uh, <laughs> you're drinking from a fire hose right now. So anyway, um, but, but what, guess what happened the day after that? He called back and he goes, it doesn't exist, Jessica. Like this is, <laughs> the, there's not regenerative products. What are we going to do? So we formulated a plan. We were able to source some organic. We were able to use uh, proximity malting. We were able to get a particular profile of malt that he wanted. And I'm not a maltster, so I don't know anything about that. Um, and so we were able to put it together. So just for context, we call it partially regenerative because we you know and he had a real problem he goes jessica we can't call this regenerative if i can't source it 100 percent regenerative right yeah Yeah. they have transitioning organic labels now right yeah they do yeah and you know that's fair as long as things are labeled labeled appropriately yeah so we will stand behind that supporting that right yeah well and we you know I guess part of our goal was to really do some robust storytelling. And when we were on stage at the event, that's one thing that I mentioned is that the desire is there to make these connections, but there are some, some loose ends in the system that we're working on to be able to close these loops so that we do have this. And, you know, this is, we could have a whole nother podcast about this is the product itself regenerative or is the, uh, system in which the crop was grown regenerative so i am leaning towards that the product itself is not regenerative it's the system in which it was grown and guess what i think it can change year to year so i don't want to certify a crop or certify a field hey this is regenerative because we're dealing with with systems and we're dealing with nature and i think that we would you know once again be slapping nature across the face if we said oh yeah yeah this product we think it's regenerative because of this checklist that we did you know a couple years ago or we certified quote unquote so i think it's it's we got a lot we could talk about right now yeah brian and i talk about that too because i think we'll see especially like on like social media groups people arguing about that's not the regenerative way and I think Brian what you say is is you know just 
if you can sit it in your context and get 80% of, of the regenerative principles, then you're regenerative. You don't have to follow a Bible and, you know. You got to start where you are. And it's yeah. a journey. Mm-hmm. So You know, it, it, it's a journey and we're all still learning together. Yeah. And I think that's that that's an important thing to note is, you know, nobody knows it all. And I'm not even sure that if you put, you know, a hundred of the best regenerative agriculture minds in the same room that you could say, right. they've got it all figured out. Like, no, we're, we're all still learning. Dangerous. See, and I think that's why I feel like it is never, ever my goal to be an activist and to fight something. It's like, uh, you know, we're going to fight climate change or we're going to win the war. No. That's, you know, it might just be my nature, my personality, but I'm here to advocate for individual change and the way, you know, I always talk about this. So we have principles of uh, regenerative agriculture, principles of soil health. And within those principles, there are multiple practices in which a person can utilize based on their own you know, geographical location, their own place-based agricultural systems that they can use to achieve a principle. So who am I to, to, you know, pick apart one practice, this is this, this isn't that. I am advocating for, um, you know, self-realization, for furthered education, and for the adoption of uh, place-based appropriate practices that help achieve their soil health goals. And that is for each individual farmer or rancher to determine for themselves, in my opinion. So how would you define regenerative agriculture or what would you say would describe over 80% of the regenerative producers? OMG, you should have told me you were going to ask me that question, right? <laughs> it just so- came to me. <laughs> Um, so here's my way of weaseling out of it. You know, I, a couple of years ago, I put that on, on social media and I got like 106 different responses to it. And I would say that is the core. The question you just asked is the core of, of what all of us is trying to understand. And I don't know, ask me again in a month and I might have a different way of describing it. Um, the way that I'm leaning towards now is, is exactly what, what I just said, is that we've got the principles of regenerative agriculture and the ways in which each producer applies their own practices will determine whether or not a system is regenerative. So I don't know. We work with uh, one of our advisors is Ray Archuleta, and he has a description that talks about the conversion of the hearts and minds is regenerative agriculture and and that really what our goal is is that we we want to think differently we want to feel differently and we want to act differently when it term it when it comes to our ag- agricultural systems so that's probably not the answer that you are looking for in all reality um but i don't know that i i every presentation we do every single conference we do um that question gets asked and and I think it's because people need something to wrap their brains around. They want to say regenerative agriculture is this. And I'm not positive I know exactly. Even after 10 years, I'm not even exactly sure 
uh, that I have the best answer for that. I have my own answer. Well, it's it's not just a small change. I mean, it's a whole different paradigm. It's a whole different way of Mindset. thinking and yep. and looking at the world and thinking about food production and agriculture. So well, for it, us, for us, it was a it was ending jobs, selling houses, and moving. That's how we that's how we found our regenerative pathway. So we'll shift gears a little bit here. How do we affect change in the system as a whole? Like it, it, systems don't change. I mean, systems or models only change in unison. And the larger and more complex a system is, the more resistant to dramatic change it is. But also the more complex a system you know, complex and large a system is, the more prone it is to failure when unforeseen um, things act on that system, like COVID and supply chain pressures. So what can people start doing? You know, what, what can producers start doing to encourage more regenerative agriculture? And then what can consumers do to, to enable that change? So what can farmers and ranchers do? Um, I think after having experience in the way that we communicate our topics and our mission is that those of us that um, have a knowledge base or those of us that, that have, um, you know, experience, maybe even like yourself, from my point of view, it's becoming humble and being available to where if a producer wants to ask some of these questions that they, they feel comfortable doing it. Uh, I was just asked a couple of weeks ago to speak at a private field day. There was zero advertising. There was nothing about it on Facebook. The, the cover crop field tour that we went to, the, the plots were put way far away from the highway. And so I just felt like this super covert operation. And what it was is, is it was a, a pure group of farmers that wanted to learn about soil health, but they didn't want to draw attention. They didn't want, um, yeah, I mean, they just went about it in a different way. And so they had asked me to be a part of it and to share a little bit about our message and about the work that we do with GPR and a small group, about 15 people. And it was really interesting because after I talked, there weren't any questions. And I thought, oh God, what did, you know, did I say something? Did I offend somebody? And a couple hours later after dinner, I was walking out and there was a group of producers sitting on the back of a pickup truck and they called me over. And this one gal, she's like, hey, we're really sorry that we didn't have any questions for you. And I said, oh, it, you know, it's okay. These things happen. And she said, this is so new to us. This is the first time any of us have ever been, you know, uh, introduced to this whole regenerative thing. And we just need to absorb it for a while. So to get to answer your question, Brian, is be available for conversations. Understand that the conversation might go differently than what you anticipate. And let's not sell Disneyland here. Let's be like, let's sell it the way that it actually is at the field level. If we over romanticize things and if we make it feel too much like a fantasy world, then it will be. And that's not what our goal is. Um, and then I think that Talking to consumers is, uh, you know, I, I actually just pulled out a definition that I used a couple weeks ago at our Lawrence, Kansas event. 
And I put regenerative agriculture as a way to use the planet's own natural systems to rebalance our climate while meaningfully supporting the farmers and ranchers we all rely on every day to grow the food on this table that we're eating right now. So I think the way that we want to talk to consumers is that, um, you know, farmers and ranchers are our best allies in this whole conversation. They are the, they are the folks on the ground that can um, help us turn this tide. And so when we go to the farmer's market and we have questions about the food, just talk to the, to the vendors, you know, talk to the people like on shop Kansas farms that are selling direct pasture raised or, you know, organic grass fed, just have the conversation and don't be afraid to support somebody because they're, they're in transition and they're trying to develop a system that's not fully ready yet. Um, but they need our support in the, in the meantime. So very interestingly, you know, I'm, you know, let's not be activists. Let's not shoot the messenger. <laughs> let's get out there and try to support the knowledge shift. And I'll, I'll just add one more thing. I think that there have been folks that have been a part of like the early adopter phase of this movement. And my prediction is that the way we scale this into the middle part of the, the folks that, that want to be um, involved in regenerative, I think the way in which that is done looks differently. I think that regenerative 2.0, that the, those people that are willing to make changes at this point, they think about technology different. They think about innovation differently. They think about government programs differently. And they're willing to work together for profitability differently than the early adopters. So my prediction is that the way we scale regenerative looks different than how we got here. So I'm, I'm, I'm rolling that concept around you just threw out, Regeneration 2.0. I remember the promise of, of the web 2.0. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember a big change, but maybe that's just because I'm the wrong generation. And... So I'm I'm thinking of this in a context of, you know, we've got a lot of, of landowners and farmers and ranchers that are just on the very hairy edge of aging out. And we've got a generation that's really young that wants to get involved in their food. And there's a whole middle generation that I'm kind of a part of that a lot of us missed that. And, you know, there's some of us in that, you know, in this, you know, 30s, 40s demographic that have been doing it for a while. And maybe we are the some of the early regenerative ranchers and farmers. So what what does regeneration 2.0 look like with another generation uh, with the next generation of farmers and ranchers coming in and the, you know, in the existing older generation aging out? You know, I think the vernacular is going to change a little bit. The way that we talk um, in these circles, I think, is going to change. You don't hear a lot about the words climate change, but the description and what we're seeing at the field level is a changing climate. So I think that as this generation, this 2.0 comes out, I think there's going to be a greater acknowledgement that, um, you know, whether it's you now have a fire season or we're experiencing desertification due to a disruption of a small water cycle. Like those were some of the things that were said before, but now I think it's clear and present for this next generation and their dad and granddad 
didn't have to address it. It was just on the fringes people were talking about climate change, floods, water, whatever. This next generation is actually going to have to be the ones that adapt to it and, and make the changes. And so whatever you want to call it, if you want to call it a changing climate, climate change, um, if we are adding in more environmental speak to the conversation, you know, talking about uh, downstream water quality um, and being able to to bridge these connections back to what I call like civic engagement. That's what I think we're going to see a little bit more of. Um, and that's what GP, GPR is trying to do. You know, I want to put the mic, I want to give the mic to a farmer to talk to civic leaders and lawmakers. And I have one more thing to add to. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, add. <laughs> you know, the emergence of different markets are going to change things, whether it is uh, selling water credits, whether it's selling carbon credits, soil carbon sequestration, I think is going to be, is going to hold a pivotal role in this change. I don't exactly know how that's going to get fleshed out right now. I'm kind of keeping myself at a distance and watching and observing and um, trying to determine the the benefit to the producer at this level. But I do think that those are all going to be factors that this 2.0 is going to be a lot more open-minded to consider and to um, actually have impact their farmer ranch. I think on some level, you know, carbon programs, carbon sequestration payments will drive a lot of regeneration 2.0 and will drive a lot of transition. I, I think so, but I, what I just want to make sure that the reasons why a person changes is supported by education and is supported by a matrix of decision-making not just I'm going to grow a cover crop right now because that's additionality and I'm going to get a payment. Like I hope that it actually drives a systems change that's mm-hmm. lasting. And so, like I said, bringing in some more of this environmental talk to the conversation in a not scary way, they're going to say, okay, well, you know, this cover crop, when applied effectively to my particular operation is going to help me with water infiltration, it's going to help me use the rainfall that I do get versus erosion or having it wash down all of my nutrients to the neighbor's farm. I mean, I'm hoping that we're that because of these markets, we're actually building a framework for knowledge and a better framework for decision making. How much resistance do you think that regenerative practices get at the producer level simply from like a political standpoint, like, oh, I don't believe in that liberal hippie climate change <laughs> crap. I'm not going to change what I'm doing. How much of that is driven, driven just by, you know, by nonsense? I think in the beginning, so a number of years ago, I think in the beginning a lot, because funny story, I, God bless my father-in-law, um, but we had brought this up to him. He's, he's not a, a, a rancher. But, you know, his, his brothers are a lot of, a lot of folks in our family are. And so, um, even just breathing the word carbon to him probably five or six years ago, he goes, oh, that, uh, he goes, uh, oh gosh, who was the guy that invented the, the internet? Um, I just lost Al Gore, right? Al Gore. Yeah. He's like, (laughs) oh, Al Gore's back. He's back. You know? And it was just, you could tell it was like this crazy political divide. And at that point we knew that that wasn't the best audience to be talking about soil carbon sequestration. So we dropped it 
Um, but it is kind of funny because I, I was listening to my husband a couple weeks ago and he ended up reviewing how this works. How do we have, uh, you know, this legacy load of carbon in the atmosphere and how do we, how do we lock it back into the soil and should we, and what are the benefits if we do? So, um, I guess just, I, I totally agree with you, Brian. I think it's in the beginning, it's really politically charged, but, what we have, we really have to distinguish is that what we're talking about now is soil carbon sequestration. I think the measurement of it, the quantification of it, that's all over the board. I, you know, I, I'm not an expert on that, but what I do know is that when we lock the carbon in the soil, we change the way that the soil functions. We change the mm-hmm. biology, we change yep. the smell, the color, the texture, the aggregation. Um, and so like, why not do it? I think, the mindset now is like, whatever, you know, is it, is it climate change? Is it some hippie voodoo? Somebody one time called it hippie voodoo to me, you know, whatever, like, does it help your operation? Are you growing better crops? Are you more resistant to too much rainfall and not enough rainfall? You know, like, yeah, whatever, like what, that's what I'm saying. I think this generation that's coming up, they don't care to be a part of grandpa's political debate anymore. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Let's get in there. Let's do the work. Let's figure it out. It's so funny. Jess, I totally had a lawyer talk to me about the carbon stuff who had been, had dealt with the Al Gore carbon stuff. Yeah. And he was just, he's like, he was burnt on it basically. Oh yeah. I learned, I learned what our, the, our predecessors had to deal with what they've been having that word. So I totally learned some empathy of like, okay, we, we've got to do this revamp and we have to do it well. We have to do it in the benefit for the farmers and the ranchers. Well, then they need to be, they need to be the ones leading it. So farmers and ranchers need to be the one that's leading it. We don't need a system of a wagging finger saying you will do this. You will do that. If you want to piss off this group of people, tell them how they're going to do something. Exactly. But if we can encourage them and if we can show that, that this is, you know, better for profitability, better for, um, you know, the, 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 the operation as a whole while at the same time having these reaping these amazing environmental benefits. Yes. That's going to be the key. That's going to be the key and making it realistic. Like Brian, we've done a number of conferences together and, one of these days, I'm going to hold true on my promise. We need to have a failures forum. Let's get together and discuss this crap that didn't work, right? And why it didn't work. Because sometimes that's where the most information is gleaned is by, you know, like, I don't want to sell this, this, this fantasy that, that if you do regenerative practices, your life's going to be amazing. Let's and it's all sunshine that. and roses, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, let's not do that. <laughs> because it's not it's hard you got your neighbors against you you got people calling your husband saying do you know what your wife is up to you know like it's it's crazy (laughs) thankfully that doesn't happen anymore (laughs) uh yeah i i haven't gotten any of those phone calls but i don't know if people just haven't uh haven't called me and told me how how dumb they think i am or everybody's just kind of keeping it to themselves (laughs) I think it's easier to, to, um, just, just, just being honest here. I think it's easier to criticize a woman who's outspoken than a man. <laughs> oh, I'm dealing with that all, all the time. Yeah. 
As much as I'd like to think that that kind of stuff doesn't go on, I know it does because, yeah. you know, I know it does. I hear a lot of stories from CK and, and other women. And, you know, thankfully, it's not so much the folks our age. It's, mm-hmm. you no. know, it's yeah. the previous generation. It's about ready to age out. And if you're listening and you're part of that generation, I'm not like, you know, trying to throw shade. It's just. We still love you. It's a different. It was a different time. It was a different, <laughs> different mindset growing up. Right. Different culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, totally. It's with all due respect to that generation, because there's been there's been some amazing advancements in agriculture. We we do have some great technology. Right? Yeah, yeah. We set this foundation, um, and and it's I, I think you see that every single generation. It's like I I was here's here's a really poor example. Maybe I'll edit this out. You know, like. Uh, skinny jeans versus mom jeans. I'm looking at this younger generation, like, what are you doing? This is such a horrible decision. When I was your age, like, you know, I did X, Y, Z and life was great. And so I think that's where a lot of that comes in. Brian, I'm sure you don't relate to this example at all, but it's always, as you start to age out on a certain topic, you have to realize that the, the world is no longer mine. The world belongs to the people after me so let's set them up for success i'm not yes. cool anymore no i that, i think that's my realization is that like yeah i'm not i'm not cool anymore <laughs> and then just a little bit about what you said earlier i also didn't realize how thick my skin would have to be yeah. to be working in something a little bit differently um i think i get reminded frequently of how my skin is not thick and it, you have to ha- you have to ask yourself this question yes. am i willing to get thicker skin and and just barrel my way through and not give a shit about anybody else or am i willing to like absorb small bits of the blows but then come back stronger mm-hmm. and come back with a message that's more that resonates more that's humble that has humility so that I bring in four or five more people versus barreling my way through and ticking people off. So I ask myself that every single day. And you know, the way I've looked at it the last few years, if someone is approaching me with a criticism or with a challenge about my production practices or my ecology, that's an opportunity for me to do better. That's an opportunity Mm -hmm. for me to learn how to communicate with that person better and to better tell my story and maybe make a convert. And something else I've realized over the last few years is, you know, especially being active on social media, you know, you'll get your, you'll get your big, you'll, your greatest fans. Right. And then you get some people that, you know, that support you, that follow you along, but the haters, the ones that comment something negative on almost every post, those are the ones I really like. And I'll tell you why. Because you already get to live in their head rent-free. And you don't have to do anything for it. You just keep being yourself. And those haters, you get to live in their head rent-free. <laughs> and that hater is one step away from being your biggest fan. Oh, yeah. I've seen that before. I have seen that before. I've heard, I've heard a story of kind of the talking head. Uh, a friend of mine was kind of doing this kind of work and putting stuff out. And there's always this one talking head, just kind of spewing negativity and just like just constantly. And then um, as it turns out that individual 
was the biggest changer of the whole group. And it, it's bizarre how that happens sometimes. And, and also you're never an expert in your own hometown. You know, that's another thing too. Uh, I, I don't ever desire to be an expert anywhere, really. I just, I just want to help people have conversations and help them source the information that they desire. Um, I don't go to groups that don't want to hear from me. Like the group that asked me to come speak privately, they sought me out. Um, as an individual, as somebody that they had had some other experience with at other conferences. And, you know, they placed me in that situation, but I don't go looking to deliver messages where somebody doesn't want that message. And that's part of meeting people where they're at. You know, there's going to be, there's always going to be a producer in the audience, no matter where you're at, that's not ready to hear your message. That's going to want to argue with everything you say. But if you go to a place where, you know, the context is, is set up right. You can set yourself up for a lot more success just by not having those people around that are going to argue with you, people that want to hear your message rather than trying mm-hmm. to force feed it to them. And I think that, you know, guys have to come to the, to the regenerative agriculture side, not out of force, you know, not because it's a stick and carrot approach, but because they want to, but because they see the value in it and they see the ecological benefits they see the sociological benefits that's what that's what i think attracts people to regenerative agriculture mm-hmm. yeah and having an open dialogue where um it's hard to make change and it's hard to do something that might cause failure you know in oh gosh maybe 2016 2017 we put in our first cover crop on some farm ground that we manage uh, we've got 150 acres of dry land and our first cover crop coming from people who were preaching the benefits was a disaster. You know, we, we didn't use the right species. The timing was off, you know, the management was off. And so um, we had to go back to the drawing board and figure out how to, you know, what's the, what's our next step for cover cropping? You know, what did we learn from that mistake? And so of course you get phone calls, people drive by the field, what the hell's out in your field right now? It looks <laughs> looks like a mess, you know? So, uh, so yeah. You, Must be you, a shitty farmer. Can't even grow a good cover crop. <laughs> well, my husband would say it's bad for business. You know, <laughs> you can't have, you can't have your field looking like that. But, uh, but no, I do. I see that stuff changing. I, I see it shifting right now. I'll tell you what, Brian, I cannot even begin to put into words the massive amount of shift we've seen in the last probably 18 months to two years. You know, when when a lot of us were talking about this four or five years ago, like I said, we didn't even know it was called regenerative. Like that wasn't. And everybody was looking at us like we were wearing tinfoil hats. Well, there were a few of you that did wear tinfoil hats, so. (laughs) I'll own that. (laughs) Uh, No, but uh, you're exactly right. Like it is, but but the research has to catch up. Um, There was a really crappy article put out today that that basically said cover crops don't work right you know so we have to go out there and we have to address okay what what is this message where is the message accurate and where is the message inaccurate you know how and and where's the 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 research to support that i do think producers you know if it comes out of research and extension some of them take that as gospel well the truth is research and extension is horribly underfunded they're not you know they're not able to do systems approach multi-year 
studies that can show the benefits of, also, of multiple. And a lot of the, who are they funded by? Yeah, their they're funding a lot, a lot of times Although comes from yeah. big ag chemical companies that are trying to sell you something. So yeah, it's only natural that the you know the extension is going to run a study on okay how do we kill this weed? Well, sponsored by you know Dow or Corteva, and well, strangely enough, the best way to manage that weed is to spray it with the chemical that the company that sponsored the study makes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting how that how that happens. You know, <laughs> but I, I think too. Here's the thing, like, what is the economic threshold of of not doing anything? Right. Like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about old world blue stem right now, and I don't know why. Uh, for those that don't know, it's an invasive warm season grass. Um, there, there's five different grasses that kind of fall into the old world blue stem family. There's yellow, Caucasian. Uh, WW Spar, King Ranch Spar, and I forget the fifth one. Uh, the funny thing about these old world blue stem grasses is back in, I think it was the 50s, 50s or 60s, the USDA brought them over here and they bred these grasses in labs. And they're like, oh yeah, hey, this is great stuff. It grows anywhere. It, it, it spreads. It's hard to kill. It's drought resistant. Okay, great. Sounds like a perfect grass. Only problem is nothing wants to eat it. There's like two weeks in September here where cows will actually go and eat it. The rest of the year, the other like 49 and a half weeks of the year, they just totally ignore it. So we create these problems. We breed these super, super grasses that are resistant to everything. Allotropic, you know, they they poison the soil around them and, you know, it's kind of converting places into monoculture. So it was probably four or five years ago. Went to a uh, went to a talk on how to control old world blue stem, and it was put on by extension. And we're going through slide after slide after slide after slide, and you know they're they're talking about some non chemical control methods like you know putting out blankets, you know like like black plastic tarps for two years to try to you know kill <laughs> it, and you know using fire and, and various things, but it was only like a three year study. And they kept going back to chemicals. And the two chemicals that were at the top of the charts for, you know, I'm going to say control in quotes, were was, a, was one called Arsenal and the other one was Roundup. And Arsenal demonstrated probably 10 to 15% better control than Roundup did, especially on a follow-up treatment. But at the end of the talk, they weren't recommending Arsenal because the study was found was funded by Monsanto, who makes Roundup and wants to sell Roundup. So what do you think they were telling everybody to do? They're telling everybody to spray their old world blue stem with Roundup, even though it was much less effective than Arsenal. Now I'm not advocating chemical use in any situation, and I'll tell you like like my anecdotal uh, fight with old world blue stem. Three years ago, I, I quit. We just, we quit spraying it. We'd been spraying it, trying to spray it, keep it under control, and it wasn't working. So we just quit. And there was a spot that was sprayed three years in a row to bare soil, and we thought we had it killed. And now, guess what's growing there? (laughs) A few weeds and some old world blue stems. So it's like, we nuked this to bare dirt for three years to try to get rid of this plant. And now that's all that's growing there. So what did we really accomplish? 
I don't know. I think that I think there's a lot of examples of how we got to where we're at based off of what you just said, Brian. I really do. Um, I love that 1000 Beating Hearts film that they did with uh, Will Harris over at Oak uh, White Oak Pastures. So and he talks about that, too. You know, it's hard. It's hard. But in a lot of ways, we've been sold a bag of goods, you know, that might not have taken us down the right path and unwinding that is going to be difficult. I don't have all the answers. <laughs> I don't think anybody does. I know. And, and, but, but that's where it makes it, it makes it so hard to, to figure all this out, you know? Um, and it's not good advice to say, you know, I've had, I've, I've been to conferences and somebody was like, stop your tillage 100% or stop 100% of your inputs or stop doing this, stop doing that. Maybe that's actually not the best recommendation, but then how do you know if, if, if the recommendation is coming from a sponsored talking head, you know, that's where we need to have independent. We need to have, um, well, first of all, like I could go into my, that my, the way my technical brain works, but um, there was a recent, study put out, I think it was co-sponsored by Patagonia that said the number one barrier to the adoption of regenerative agriculture practices was lack of trusted advisement. Meaning that we can attend all the conferences we want to in the world, but if you, on your two hour drive home, if there's nobody in those zip codes between the conference and home that can either corroborate or can help you adjust to the information that you just learned. And you go out there and you try to input something that you heard at a conference based off of a guy that lives in a different region, you might not find success and then you might give up. So how do we, how do we put back in, um, you know, systems where we have independent recommendations being given by, by people who don't make money off of quotas. And yeah. What is this guy trying to sell me? Why is he telling me to do this? What does what does what do they stand to gain if I adopt this practice or or management philosophy? And I think that's you know it, it that's why it's it's hard to get funding to talk about regenerative agriculture because it is because Dow Monsanto and Corteva and John Deere aren't going to get rich selling us shit to do regenerative agriculture with you know there's there's no big company that that is in the sphere. There's no startup that's really in the sphere with a lot of money to throw around. That's got a product to sell you because I think at the end of the day, you know, regenerative practices are kind of almost the opposite of, you know, the corporate commoditization and the big centralization, globalization of agriculture. It is, it is. And you know, at scale, I don't know what that looks like. I heard through the grapevine, um, another, independent consultant. And, and I say that about myself, you know, I work in communications and content, so that doesn't, I'm not implying that I'm a, you know, agronomist or crop consultant, but one of my colleagues was telling me that she was approached recently by a major retailer and that um, the gist of the conversation is that they were wanting to turn into services. They wanted to make sure that they were offering services to producers because they understood that if things go the way that it might be predicted for the way that the climate looks, for the way that maybe um, government programs look, that there's going to be a reduction in the amount of inputs that will be needed 
to farm in the future. So how do they make those adjustments to be able to offer services and education, which I actually, I found that um, to be very promising and to, to think that if this is actually going to change business models, that's the only way this, and I'm optimistic that we can do that favorably for the producer. I don't know. Time, we shall see. Time, time will tell <laughs> if, my, if, if my optimistic rings true. Well, I, I want to try to hang on to some of that optimism. I think that's that's our only choice. We have to hang on to the optimism and we have to keep moving forward on the only path that a lot of us see as as the only way forward. Um so kind of kind of heading to wrap this up. I know we all have stuff to get out and get doing today. What uh any thoughts you kind of want to end with? Anything we left on the table? No, I mean, I think this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you, CK and Brian, because you, what you guys are doing is you're putting information out there and it's, 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 you know, it, it's has a lot of variety for people to digest. And so thank you for allowing me to come on here. Um, thank you for allowing me to have a few rabbit holes with you <laughs> and, go, and go down this, but, um, you know, I just think it's going to take a lot of different thought processors and a lot of different brain power. And like Brian, you mentioned earlier, what we're witnessing right now is a shift in energy. There's a huge shift in energy happening globally. That Mm -hmm. is, um, you know, I, I read an article about, I think it was called the great resignation where people there, you know, that there are, there's employee shortages, but there's also people that are thinking to themselves, I am a part of a mechanical corporate structure right now that doesn't supply my body, my family, you know, my four walls with what I need to survive. And so people are willing to change and do something drastically different. So I think we're in the middle of that change is hard. Change is messy. It's bloody. It's gory. It's, um, you know, filled with aha moments of bliss and aha moments of just like pure panic. And I've, I've been there over the last 18 months too, but I just think in in closing, we're witnessing something that's never happened before. We're witnessing a massive shift in thought processes. And I hope that this massive shift goes into actual changes at the farm level so that when the history books are written, you know, when my kids and my grandkids are talking about um, things that they've witnessed in their life, they're like, well, my, you know, my mom or my grandma or my uh, you know, my dad stood to do something different, to get out of the status quo. And so that, that's where my great hope lies is that we're doing these things right now so that in the future, we've actually made change. You know, that the result of COVID is that people said enough is enough. Let's get some stuff figured out and let's make right. some real positive changes. I think that's good too. I think, I think our goal is in kind of aligned with what your goal is too, with this podcast and just we're cultivating conversations. That's where we want to start. And and if that creates people with an impact of wanting to continue to talk about that and learn more about how they can, can, um, you know, just do small changes in their own life. That's kind of the success we want to have with, with our goals. 
Yeah. If you want to, what is the quote? I'm going to butcher it. You know, if you want to see small changes, yeah, change the way you do things. If you want to make big changes, change the way you, you think about them. Yep. So where can we find you, Jess? Uh, check me out on LinkedIn, Jessica Nad. Uh, also check me out on Great Plains Regeneration website. It's greatplainsregen.org. And uh, we'll have some events coming up in the next couple months. And uh, you can find me at Fuller Field School next week. We're supporting uh, Gail Fuller. And his handle is just fullerfieldschool.com. And um, yeah, I mean, just keep on keeping on everybody. We're doing some some cool stuff. This will probably come out after Gail's school, but... Uh... Gail's a good guy. We need to get him on the podcast okay. one of these days. Yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah. But so that's a, that's a, we'll probably do two or three more of those fuller field schools. Um, the goal and, and one thing that we're working on right now is, is turning that into a land leadership um, system to where we're, we're doing some fully immersive field schools, not field days, you know, actual field schools. And so that's kind of a, exciting part of the future that we have with great plans of generation. Well, good deal. Good deal. Jess, I, it's been great. (laughs) And, uh, like I said, I think we all have things we need to get on with and, uh, and get on with our day. Really want to thank you for joining us today and, uh, look forward to many more conversations in the future. It was my pleasure. Thank you, CK. Thank you. All right, guys, have a good day and we'll catch you later. Yeah. Bye.